0: Welcome to another episode of On the Issues with Alan Ben-Mir. Today's guest is Avi Shlaim, Professor Emeritus of International Relations at St. Anthony's College, University of Oxford. His most recent book, Three Worlds, Memoirs of an Arab Jew, discusses his childhood in Baghdad and his family's flight to Israel, interwoven with the history of the Jews in Iraq in the early 20th century. In this episode, Alan and Avi discuss this book, including Jewish-Arab harmony in Iraq until 1948. And both of their personal experiences of childhoods in Baghdad, the relationship between Ashkenazi and Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews in Israel in history until today, and current prospects, if any, for an Israeli-Palestinian peace.
1: Again, thank you so much, Abi, for taking the time to have this. I think it's a very important discussion, given the the topic that uh, we want to talk about specifically: the plight, I should say, of the. Jews from Arab lands and in particular I would like to focus on the the Iraqi Jews and uh, specifically about the book that you have just published about their plight. So let me just ask you about what motivated you to begin with to write the book and we can take it from there. Uh,
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be in conversation uh, with you. Uh, My academic discipline is international relations, and I've been a professor of international relations at Oxford for the last 35 years. And my main research interest is the Arab-Israeli conflict. So I was always aware that the main victim of the Zionist movement were the Palestinians the Zionist movement displaced the Palestinians from Palestine and dispersed them. The Zionist movement was responsible for the Nakba in 1948 when um, three quarters of a million million Palestinians became refugees and the name Palestine was wiped off the land. In short, uh, the Zionist movement carried out ethnic cleansing of Palestine in 1948. But it was much, much later in life that I became aware that there is another category of victims of Zionism who are not much talked about. And these are the the Jews of the Arab lands. Um, And there were a large number of them in the Arab lands. My family was a Jewish family in Baghdad. The Jews in Iraq had lived there for two and a half millennia since the Babylonian exile, and the creation of the State of Israel led to a complete upheaval uh, and made uh, Muslim-Jewish coexistence almost impossible in the Arab countries. Uh, So that's what led me to uh, explore the history of my own family, that led me to start writing this memoir, which is really a family history. Uh, so it's not just personal history, it's a family story and set against the wider background of the history of the Jews uh, of Iraq in the 20th century.
1: Right, yeah. and, and um... You know, you, you mentioned. Uh, I mean, like only from the from the review of the book. So uh, I'm just uh, picking a couple of points from the review of the book. Uh, how the Zionists moved, uh, infiltrated into the Iraqi Jewish community, and basically began to instigate it, um, the violence. Instigated, um, you know, create, tried to create an environment to make it extremely. Uncomfortable, in fact, hazardous for the Jewish community. Albeit, from my recollection, from what I know about our history in Iraq, the, the Iraqi Jewish community, as you well noted, I'm sure, in your book, we have had we had a wonderful life in, in Iraq itself. Uh, and I mean, with the exception of one a small pogrom that took place in 19, believe 1944 was it, when Rashid Ali was in power,
0: 1941.
1: 41, 41, when Rashid Ali was in power, but that was a very, very brief period. I mean, considering the, the two and a half millennia that the Jews live in Iraq, uh, you know, it's it's really, it's. I mean, it, it's significant, but it is not that significant to portray our life as if it was miserable in, in, in Arab lands. That was not necessary, no, that was not the case. Uh, so I felt really very emotional about it because I was witness myself of this Zionist agent actually came to our home talking to my elder brothers about what they planning to do, which is really the most incredible thing. I mean, I never wrote this story. I never spoke much about it. But what you have just said, what you said in your book is, it, it really boggles the mind and very few people in fact do know about what actually happened. So I would love for you to Will I elaborate, uh, Abi, on 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 your research and and uh, the direct and indirect experience that you and your family have had in connection with this uh, with the Zionist movement at the time?
0: Well, let us start with the Farhud, the pogrom against the Jews uh, in Baghdad on the first and second of June, nineteen forty-one. And uh, uh, in Zionist historiography, this is a critical episode. Uh, and round it is built a whole theory, not a theory, but a whole argument that this was a uh, manifestation of underlying endemic, pervasive Arab antisemitism. So it was antisemitism, that caused the pogrom against the Jews. And um, uh, that's all there is to it. It's a manifestation of um, innate and inherent Arab anti-Semitism. And I um, have investigated the subject uh, and I see the Farhud as uh, a much more complex story. Anti-Semitism is one element but it's not necessarily the most important element. The most yes. important element is Arab nationalism. Rashid Ali Gailani um, led a revolt, a nationalist revolt, against the British, and he kicked the British out of Iraq. And he was in power for a month. And then the British sent forces uh, and to recapture Iraq, and uh, Rashid Ali fled uh, the country and the British ambassador in Baghdad, Sir um, Kinahan Cornwallis, ordered the British army to stay outside Baghdad so that Iraqis wouldn't be able to say that the regent Abdul Ilah was reimposed on them by British bayonets. But there is no way that the regent could have come back to Baghdad except with British. Uh, bayonets. And it was two days that there was a breakdown of law and order, and there was an attack on the Jews, Uh, and uh, and there was a lot of Iraqi soldiers who were uh, anti-British they were still armed and frustrated and angry, and they took out the angry on the Jews. On the second day, it wasn't so much anti-Semitism. It was poor people from the neighborhoods, from the outskirts of Iraq who came for the loot. Uh, So British colonialism uh, had a lot to do with what happened. Cornwallis unleashed Arab anger, uh, Iraqi anger against the Jews. My parents hated Cornwallis. They thought he was a villain, but they couldn't pronounce his name. So they just called him Al Kalb ibn Al Kalb, the dog and the son yes. of the dog. That's right. The Farhud was not typical or representative of Muslim Jewish history over the previous uh, centuries. Uh, th- the pattern, by and large, was of harmony between. Uh, Muslims and Jews and Christians. Uh, Iraq didn't have a so-called Jewish problem in inverted commas. Uh, Europe had a Jewish problem. Iraq did not. In Iraq, there are many minorities. The Jews were one minority against others. There were Christians, there were Catholic, the Greek Christians, there were Syrians, There were Circassians, there were Turkomans, and by and large, these minorities got on well. This was the legacy of the Ottoman Empire of um, a multi ethnic, multi religious empire in which each community enjoyed a large degree of autonomy, of um, civil and religious uh, autonomy. So there was that religious tolerance and getting on between the minorities. And the Jews didn't stand out. They weren't the other in Iraq. They were one minority. And everyday life was one of getting on with life. So uh, Muslim-Jewish harmony was nothing exceptional. Uh, It was the everyday reality. And my family and I, for us, Muslim-Jewish harmony coexistence was not an abstract idea. It was right. the reality which we experienced and we touched it. Um, and all this changed because of the rise of nationalism, Arab nationalism on the one hand, and uh, and Jewish nationalism or Zionism on the other hand. Until 1948, when Israel was created, the Jews were Iraqis, the well integrated into Iraqi society. But in 1948, there was the first Arab-Israeli war. The Iraqi army fought in Palestine. Uh, After the Arab defeat in 48, there was a backlash against the Jews in all the Arab countries, uh, including uh, Iraq. And Zionism gave the Jews a territorial dimension for the first time. So now there was the state of Israel, and Arab nationalists could say to to Jews in Iraq and elsewhere, uh, you don't belong here. Uh, You you are not Iraqis. Um, You are outsiders. uh, And um, you go uh, and join your brothers in Palestine. So the Jews who in Iraq for centuries had been a positive element, a pillar of Iraqi society, were now perceived increasingly as a fifth column. Right, right. Yeah, but
1: but then again, the, the Zionist movement at the time also played a role in, in order to, in fact, give a push or intensify what the Iraqi government at the time been conveying with saying, you know, you do not belong here. But they, just I just wanted to elaborate on the. What then? What does the role of the, of the Zionist movement in Iraq, who came to basically instigate, create an environment that is no longer conducive for the Jews to, to continue to live in Iraq and and uh, and up to immigrate to to Israel instead? Well. Uh,
0: the Zionist involvement, active involvement in Iraq, began after the Farhud. Um, uh, more and more. Zionist emissaries were sent from Palestine to um, uh, Iraq. And um, the reason for that was to defend the Jews in the event of another uh, Farhud, to organize self-defense of the Jewish community. But it went beyond that, because there were also Zionist emissaries who taught young Iraqi Iraqi Jews? They taught them Hebrew and they indoctrinated them. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, they indoctrinated them, um, and um, uh, they propagated the notion that the only place for Jews is the new is the state of Israel uh, or the state in the making, uh, and the uh, Zionist involvement grew. In uh, Iraq, and after the 1948 war, there was persecution of the Jews at the official level because the government turned the Jews into a scapegoat for the Arab defeat in Palestine and a scapegoat for its own failures internally, the failure of its economic and social uh, uh, policies. So, um the Zionist emissaries uh, encouraged an assistant with uh, in illegal Jewish migration uh, from Iraq. Um, the Zionist movement enabled helped Zionist sorry uh, uh, Iraqi Jews to uh, leave the country, across uh, the border into Iran sometimes with the help of Kurdish smugglers. And from Iran, they made their way to Tehran and then to Israel. So after, in 1949, there was increasing Jewish illegal immigration. Mm-hmm. But in March 1950, the Iraqi government passed a law which said that any Iraqi Jew who wants to leave the country is free to do so. They have a year to register, cancel their citizenship, and to leave on a um, one-way visa. They wouldn't be able to return. And that's when the Zionist movement moved into really high gear and took over from the Jewish community and its institutions the registration of people and encouraged and pressed people to register to leave uh, Iraq. Uh, But most Jews loved Iraq. They had deep roots in the country. They had no desire to go to uh, another country, an alien country. My father was an Iraqi. He could only speak Arabic. Zionists meant nothing to him. Uh, My mother used to um, wax lyrical about the wonderful Muslim friends we had in Baghdad. And one day I said to her, Did we have any Zionist friends? And she said, No. She looked at me as if it was a very strange question. She said, No, Zionism is an Ashkenazi thing. It's nothing to do with us. So it wasn't a natural thing for uh, the majority of Iraqi Jews to want to leave the country. But the cre- pressures on them increased. And the Zionist movement sidelined the leaders of the Jewish community and took over control and made decisions that the uh, leadership really disapproved of. So they encroached on the authority of the leadership and they did everything that they could to accelerate the uh, Jewish exodus from Iraq. Right,
1: right. Tell me, I mean, I have the story. Is there any truth to the story that actually the British government made a deal with the Iraqi government to to get them to register to leave if they want to leave? Is, has Britain had any role to play in that kind of that arrangement? To your to your, to your knowledge,
0: uh, yes. Uh, Britain um, liked the idea of the Jews of Iraq leaving the country and going to uh, Israel. And the same had happened before, in 1949, uh, the Jews from Yemen um, moved to Israel, something like Mm -hmm. 50,000 of them. This Mm -hmm. only became possible after Britain agreed to the departure of the Yemeni Jews to go to Israel. That's another story. They suffered a lot, physical hardship, on the way uh, to Israel. Uh, But that's a different story. In Iraq, the Iraqi government turned to the the British ambassador and said, we have a problem. This is in 1950. We have a problem. Um, A lot of Jews are leaving the country illegally. Uh, What should we do? And the British ambassador said, you should let them leave legally, legalize the process. Um, and we already have the draft of a law. So the law was drafted by Britain. Uh, and um, the British ambassador asked the, the prime minister, the Iraqi prime minister, uh, how many Jews do you think would leave? At that time, there were 135 Jews in Iraq. Um, and um, the prime minister said, I think about ten thousand. <laughs> yeah. so, so that was the thinking behind the the plan. Uh, you legalize a process which is chaotic and damaging, and damaging to the economy, and allow the those who are the malcontents, those um, who wanted to leave allow them make it easy for them to leave the country right. Uh, right. but he didn't think that the exodus would assume such proportions because uh, by the end of 1952 125000 out of 135000 jews ended up in israel right, right. so right. the whole the, the experience of the israeli of the jews who ended up in israel differed uh, but the question is why did so many nearly all of them end up in israel why didn't if they had to leave iraq why didn't they go elsewhere and the answer is that israel was the only country that would take them because they surrendered their nationality their passport they couldn't go to any other country they could only go to israel and the Zionist movement organized the transport for them. So these Iraqis, many of them were wealthy or middle class or reasonably well to do, they all arrived in Israel with one suitcase and 50 dinars. They had lost everything. So they arrived they arrived penniless in Israel, um, and they were some of them felt trapped. Uh, uh in Israel, the experience of individuals differed, but for the community, the Jewish community as a whole, the experience was one of collective trauma. It was like a tree being pulled up by the roots.
1: Right, right. You know, I, I mean, my personal experience from that, you know, I remember very vividly uh, my family. You know, I had seven siblings. My father and mother, uh, so 10 of us, we were sent to a refugee camp near Kvarsaba. And we lived in a single tent, just one big tent with 10 beds, you know, the folding beds. I never forget that scene. And and we, uh, you know, three times a day, we go in the morning to pick up breakfast and then from a center where they distribute the food. The same thing we did for lunch and dinner. Uh, I mean, two two years of that experience has been in a, engraved in my my mind, in my soul, in my head, and I never forget that experience. And of course, on top of that, as you, as I'm sure any book you must have elaborated on that the the intense discrimination. I mean, on the one hand, the Zionist movement wanted all the Jews to come to to Israel in order to create a larger Jewish community. Of course, with their long term objective on having a majority of Jews in Palestine. Uh, on the other hand, once they have these Jews from there, from Yemen, from Morocco, from Iraq, etc., they have never been able, they do not want to treat them equally to the Ishkenazi Jews. And so we have we have felt victims to this intense discrimination that really I I feel even today we're still, still in Israel, there's still discrimination against uh, Jews from the Middle East. Uh, which is, which is, in my view, is a tra- it's a tragedy uh, b- because it is has and continued to weaken the Israeli social fabric um, and there's lack of cohesiveness and of course now the division goes to transcend uh, Jewish, Jews, Jews versus, Israeli Jews because of what's happening in recent years in, in Israel. Uh, let me just go back to your family ex- your family experiences subsequently when your family left, and and you indicated you know what 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 happened what was their experience as a family when once they arrived in Israel um
0: we were lucky we were a wealthy upper middle class jewish family my father was a very wealthy um uh, merchant my parents had a very high social status in back Uh, And um, uh, there was a crisis in 1950. Uh, My father wanted to stay. My mother wanted to leave. And then the situation became unsafe for Jews. Uh, A number of bombs exploded in Jewish sites, and we can come back to that. Um, And my mother said it's not safe for the children to stay here, so we have to leave. And my mother had a British passport because mm. her father had been a, an interpreter uh, for the British consulate in Iraq. I see. So in 1950, my mother, my grandmother, Muslim, my two sisters and I left Iraq, Baghdad on a regular flight to Cyprus and from then by boat to Haifa. Right. And we didn't go into a Mar-Bara in like you. We didn't go into a transit camp. Um, uh, uh, we were picked up by my mother's uncle who had a house in Ramadgan, and we stayed with him until uh, we bought a, a flat of our own. But my father left Iraq illegally and uh, not through the Zionist movement. Uh, and it was a very harrowing journey uh, and eventually he joined us in Ramad Gan, and he managed to get some of a small fraction of his wealth to Israel. Uh, but in Israel, the um, fortunes of the family um, really declined dramatically because Aliyah migration to Israel. Aliyah means, as you know, it means ascent. Mm -hmm. My experience was that it was steep uh, (laughs) To the margins of of Israeli society. And my father was a very proud and dignified person in Iraq, very well respected. Um, in, In Israel, he couldn't speak the language. He couldn't find his place. He tried to cut two uh, business ventures, and he was cheated. And when the money went, ran out after a couple of years, my mother had to go and work as a telephonist in the town hall. Um, she had never worked before in her life, and she became the breadwinner. Obviously, there were tensions between my parents, and eventually they got divorced. Um, so the move from Iraq to Israel was a catastrophe for my uh, for my family, for my parents.
1: Right, right. Uh, I mean, You know, over the years, the last 20, 30, 40 or so actually, I made it a point to meet, uh, because of my work, my writing on the subject, to meet with um, just about every single ambassador who came to the United States and the United Nations as well as in DC, uh, among all other Arab ambassadors. And without any exception, just about every ambassador I made over the last 30 years, they tell me, if we have one major regret, is that we let the Jews, the Jews left Iraq. Have you heard this before? What, what, what's your take on that? Is there, was there really deep regrets but in fact, the Jews left Iraq and the Iraqi government subsequently began to really rethink the tragedy they have experienced as a result of the departure en masse of the Iraqi Jewish
0: community. Uh, yes, I have um, come across um, the same attitudes that you have with a, a large number of Iraqis that I have met, of, uh, of Muslims. Uh, Iraqis, but only educated Iraqis, because ordinary uneducated Iraqis really don't know the history of what happened. Mm -hmm. Many Iraqis of the older generation who had the experience of coexisting with Jews bitterly regret what had happened. And they blame not only the Zionist movement, they blame their government right. for uh, the pressure that they put, the persecution of the Jews that led to the departure, because their experience of the Jews was an entirely positive one. The Jews from the 1920s onwards contributed to Iraqi nation building at every level the economic the financial, the intellectual, the political, the cultural. So they're a very positive element. And this element was lost to Iraqi society very suddenly in 1950. And there are some Iraqis, uh, Muslim, Iraqi Muslim today in Iraq who are in contact by internet with Iraqi Jews in Israel, and they have communications, and they have a lot in common. They talk in Arabic about the good old days. So there is right. regret and nostalgia on both sides. But yes. some Iraqis, born after 1948, have no idea that this was the reality. Uh, and this is why my book has made such an impact in the arab world because the notion of an arab jew is totally alien they they don't know they've never come across an arab jew uh, and my my book is a uh, opened a completely new perspective on what muslim jewish relations can can be like uh, if you like I'm the living embodiment of the idea of an Arab Jew. In Israel, I was indoctrinated um, and therefore I was embarrassed and ashamed to be an Iraqi. And I had an inferiority complex that that shaped my relationship with Israeli uh, society. But today I'm 77 and I'm really proud of my Arab heritage. And I am proud to present myself as an Arab Jew. Israelis don't like it, but that's too bad. They believe that uh, an Arab Jew is an ontological impossibility. If you are an Arab, you cannot be a Jew. And if you are a Jew, you cannot be an (laughs) Jew. I am the living embodiment that such a thing did exist and can still exist.
1: And I, I fully, fully, fully agree with you because the truth of the matter is I feel precisely the same thing. And I have never abandoned, relinquished that that thought, that feeling, because this is how, how I feel. And I think, you know, for the Israelis, this was an enigma. How is it possible if you are Jewish, you still think of yourself as an Arab Jew for that matter? But in your, uh, in your book, um, based again on the review only, and I'm sure you elaborate on that extensively on the book. Uh, now that the Jews, uh, many of the Sephardic Jews landed and end up in Iraq, in, in Israel. And as we already indicated earlier, that the the discrimination against against uh, Jews from the Middle East, from uh, North, North Africa, uh has you know been very intense. And very really very little ameliorated since going back five, six, even decades until this very day. There's an interesting phenomena though. Um why, from your perspective, many of the um Spartac Jews in Iraq from the various Arab countries are more to the right of center in the current Israeli in, in the various Israeli government. And uh, for example, they take the party Shat, which is pretty much, you know, uh, composed of Jews from the Middle East. Why do you feel that notwithstanding the fact that they did not have really that terrible experience in various Arab lands, why did they feel that the majority of them are the right of center in the political spectrum in Israel itself nowadays? This is a really
0: interesting question, um, and it touches on a really important aspect of Israeli politics because the the Sephardi Jews uh, are uh, mostly of uh, the lower social economic status uh, and uh, the Ashkenazi establishment has very little to offer them Uh, and uh, in terms of social and economic policies. So the question is, why do the majority of uh, Sephardi or Mizrahi uh, Jews, Mizrahi, support the parties of the right or the religious parties like Shas? And the sort of official or semi-official answer is because uh, these Jews lived in Arab countries They know what Arabs are like. They know that you can't trust Arabs. They know that Arabs only respect force. That's why they vote for nationalist parties in Israel. My explanation of this phenomenon is very, very different. I believe that it's in Israel that they were indoctrinated to hate Arabs and to regard Arabs as um, the enemy. That was certainly my experience at school and my experience at the army, to be indoctrinated into Zionism, the view that we are, Israel is a small peace loving country surrounded by very nasty Arab predators who want to throw us into the sea. And the only thing we can do is stand up um, and fight. And and David Ben-Goyon, the first prime minister he had no idea, no desire for Israel to be integrated into the region. Uh, and the Founding Fathers were all Ashkenazi Jews. Right, right. They saw Israel not as um, um, part of the Middle East, an integral part, but an outpost of the Western world. And in one policy debate, Ben-Gurion said it's only as a result of a geographical accident that we find ourselves in this region. Our values um, and our culture and our ideology makes us part of Europe, part of the free world. So that's the basic problem that Israel has never wanted to integrate into um, uh, the region. And to return to your question, Oriental Jews, in Israel, in order to um, belong, they wanted yeah, to yeah, establish yeah. their nationalist credentials by voting for right-wing and Arab-spurning parties.
1: Yeah, basically, yes, you, you are correct. You know, basically, with the you know successive Israeli government, on the one hand, they have discriminated against the Jews, the Mizrahim, the Jews from various Arab countries. And on the other, they had to indoctrinate them to be anti-Muslim anti at the same time. Uh, and so here, the, the, the dual approach on the one hand, you're discriminating against them, and on the other hand, you, you know, indoctrinate them to be anti-Arab, anti-Arab at the same time, which was consistent with their overall approach that we have more belong to the West rather than belong to the East, against the integration into the Arab world. And this, this particular you know, attitude it hasn't really changed in my view much, even to this day. I mean, Israel of course would like now to have normal relations with the rest of the Arab world, they the hail the Abraham Accord, the efforts nowadays to normalize relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Uh, but the push in my view is coming more from the Arab world than even the Israelis themselves. That is the Arab state, because of what Israel is all about today, what Israel can do to the region. Israel, military prowess, technological power, economic uh, you know advancement all of that is making the Arabs say well Israel is a reality we cannot deny that reality we cannot destroy Israel we might as well take advantage of the of the Jewish state uh, not out of love for the Jews but out of perhaps necessity as a result of you know Israel is a fact of life and they have to to, to live with it So let me let me just go back to your your thesis. Because you combine, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and it's- what- do you see a relationship between these two phenomena, the the Israeli insistence today on the, continuing the occupation? I don't know if it's majority, but certainly at least half of the Israeli population are against the establishment of the Palestinian state, maybe a little bit more than that. Do you see any correlation, any connection? between the the various policies of the various uh, Israeli government policies toward the Iraqi, toward the Faradim and and the continuing occupation, do you see any relationship between the two? I have my own own take on the subject. What's your your position on that?
0: I, I think you're much more of an expert on this issue about the connection between the two. So why don't you, Give us your take on the issue. Well, well,
1: I mean, my my feeling is that, like exactly what you said, having indoctrinated them to be against, that they do not belong to the Arab world, that they belong to the Jewish state, albeit the discriminate against them. So they set them up to be against the Palestinians. So generation after generation, nowadays, if you go to be that. Iraqi of, 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 of Iraqi origin, Yemenite origin or Moroccan origin. They ask them what do they think about the Palestinian? 10, 12 years old boy will tell you, I hate the Palestinian. They are my enemy. This, the fact is that uh, uh, Sephardic so Jews today in Iraq are a majority. And Not the Sephardic
0: Jews by, in by, by you, you said the Sephardic Jews in Iraq. But in Israel
1: the no, Israeli Jews are, in Israel
0: are majority. a majority as a
1: majority not by a huge margin but at least 55 56 percent are the Jews in Israel of Middle Eastern North African origin this is these are the statistics I see and I have so 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 for the Israelis to to maintain the, the, the those who are in, in against the establishment of the Palestinian state. They understand that the the Jews from Mizrahim are a majority. So they need that majority to sustain the attitude, the position against the creation of a Palestinian state. So if you go, for example, to the military today, the ground forces, not the the elite, they made sure that the very, very much of the elite of the Israeli military. The vast majority are Ashkenazi Jews, still to this day, not, not Mizrahim. But they need this the, the, the rank and file of the Israeli military, but by and large, 70, 80 percent of them are Jews from of, of Middle Eastern and North African origin. And, and so that indoctrination, this is what makes it possible today for, for the form this current government without Shaz, and without those uh, Middle Eastern Jews who lean to the right, to the right of center, the occupation would not have been able to be sustained. That's how I see the the connection between the two sides.
0: Yes, and despite this deep cleavage in Israeli society, um, not because of, uh, not despite the cleavage, but uh, since its origins, Israel has suffered this um, social cleavage. And the elites were always Ashkenazi. That hasn't changed. The political uh, elite, the cultural uh, elite, uh, and to a lesser extent, the economic elite, definitely the military elite have been yes. Ashkenazi. All right. um, and uh, today the occupation goes on and there is a creeping occupation uh, and the whole of Israeli society has been shifting to the right. Right. The whole of Israeli society since roughly the second Intifada, the year 2000, Israel Israel was divided into two kinds, pro-Netanyahu and Uh, anti-Netanyahu. And now Netanyahu has managed to cobble the coalition which is unique in Israel's history. Not unique, right. but it's the most right-wing, the most yeah, chauvinistic, right. the most um, uh, anti-Arab, most pro-settler, the most um, overtly racist yes, government right. in Israel's entire history. It, it's not a, a center-right government. It's a right and ultra-right Government with right. fascist elements in it, like uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir and um, uh, El Smotrich, yeah. who are yeah. avowed racists, who are anti-Arab, not just anti and uh, anti-Palestinian, uh, not only uh, for the maintaining the occupation, but they are much more extreme. They would like the yeah. formal annexation of the whole of the West Bank and making Israel officially an apartheid state and forcing mm. the Arabs to live as third-class citizens, in fact, not citizens at all, as right. people yeah. without any outright in a Jewish supremacist uh, state. So that's the situation today, which is very dire. The whole Israeli society has shifted to the right. And Net- Benjamin Netanyahu, this is his fifth term as prime minister. In his previous four terms, he was a very strong uh, prime minister, but now he's a very weak prime minister. Yeah, he's, a, he's a captive he's a, on his coalition partners.
1: Right, right. He's a, he's a captive to this coalition. Yeah, you are absolutely right. Now, the uh, I have I've been maintaining all along that. Yeah, all the occupation is lasted this far 50 plus 56 years. I maintain that the occupation is not sustainable, that is, in the That is, Israel, no matter what measures it might take now and the years to come, for the Palestinians, will never. And it's you know in politics usually you shouldn't you, know, you don't want to use it but never because things do change. But in in this case, I maintain that is the Palestinian would never give up their right to establish a state of their own. Uh, that what well, the repercussions of that 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 position. Well, we, how it's, it's going it to continue? to evolve. and I think violence has become uh, it is already a routine. It could intensify sometime. It could subside sometime. But there is no possibility, in my view, that the Palestinians will even give, even if Saudi normalized relation, which is the last hope for the Palestinians to realize uh, some kind of statehood. Uh So where do you see? See, I I ask Israelis, oh, top official. Okay, you you want to maintain the occupation. Where do you see Israel 10, 15 years down the line from now? And honestly, Abiy, I never get a straight answer. In fact, like Bennett said, when we we asked him this question, he said, I don't know. When he was prime minister, I don't know. And you all know the the, Lapid, the Bennett uh, government, the coalition government, since they could not agree on what to do with the Palestinians, decided to leave this issue completely out of any discussion with this coalition government. As if. It was just a little side issue of no consequence to Israel today or in its future. So, what's your take on the, you know, and then we can talk a little bit about your ideas of one state and what I think might might provide possibility also for, for, for a resolution to the conflict through the creation of confederation between Israel, Palestine, and Jordan. But in terms of your position in terms of the occupation, do you see it the way I see it, or you differ from, from, this, uh, from this point of
0: view? I agree with your premise that um, apartheid is not sustainable in the long run. You said occupation isn't sustainable in the long run. I say apartheid, um, okay. because it's one regime from the Jordan River to the sea, uh, and it's an apartheid regime. And you cannot distinguish between Israel proper and the occupation of the West Bank. It's one authority is in charge of the whole area and it's, it's an apartheid regime. And in the 21st century, I think apartheid is not sustainable. Because, and the signs of that, public opinion is moving very, very rapidly, very quickly uh, against Israel there is more criticism of Israel in the world and greater and greater sympathy for the Palestinians. And although there is a disconnect between Western governments that are pro-Israeli and the publics that are pro-Palestinian, in the longer term, Western foreign policy would reflect public opinion. So I think there is no future in the occupation. And when I ask Israelis, as you do, what's the future what does the future hold they have no answer okay. um, so uh, if you ask me what's the solution I, my answer is this for many many years i supported a two state solution a two state solution wouldn't give the palestinians absolute justice but there is no such a thing as absolute justice in the in the real world but they when they signed the Oslo Accord, they agreed to a Palestinian state on the West Bank and Gaza with a capital city in East Jerusalem. That's what they hoped they would get, that they uh, did not. So I supported a two-state solution. But Israel has destroyed the possibility of a viable Palestinian state. Uh, Israel has expanded uh, the settlements and Israel has built the so-called security barrier which um, encroaches on Palestinian land uh, and if I had to summarize in one word the reason for the breakdown of the Oslo peace process it's it'd be settlements so Israel by its expansionist policies and entrenching the occupation has, killed um, the option of a two-state solution. And therefore, today, I support a one state be, uh, because one state is the only democratic solution. Um, that's one state from the river to the sea with equal rights for all its citizens uh, regardless of religion and ethnicity. So that's what I support. I know this is pie in the sky. I know it doesn't have any realistic uh, possibility of um, coming about, uh, but I blame Israel for eliminating the other option, and therefore, okay. ideologically, I think this is the only solution that is acceptable to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you now you're saying it yourself, it's, a, it's a probably a pie in the sky, because in reality, demo, demographically speaking, if, if we were to establish one state, a, a democratic state as such, uh, the Palestinian will be a majority. In fact, you don't have to wait for even five years. There will almost be a majority within this one single state, and Israel will certainly lose its Jewish national identity, which is, Israelis want to preserve at all costs. And so I, have, I agree with you. I think with a one-state solution, uh, however fair, And it is, and however, the right thing to do. It simply will not happen because the Israelis will not allow this to happen, losing the very reason, really, why Israel was created from their perspective in the first place. It has no longer become the the home for the Jewish people. Uh, So because of that, because of these considerations, I started to think in terms, okay, let's look at the realities on the ground. And see, is there any other possibility where still a Palestinian state can exist? And so if, if, may I, if I may just briefly, maybe because I would love to hear your comment on it, uh, why I'm thinking of Confederation. Israel today, and you are absolutely right to suggest, will not make bilateral peace agreement with the Palestinians by themselves. It just won't happen anymore. Much of the settlement are to, to stay in place. Um, they do not trust the Palestinians, the tremendous animosity, hatred, it takes years and years and years to obviously you know to reconcile these kind of differences, even if there's a decision to make to allow the Palestinians to have a state of their own. So demographically, Israelis and Palestinians are everywhere, in the West Bank, in Israel proper, and certainly nearly half of the uh Jordanian uh, populations is of Palestinian origin. So, Palestinians are intermingled both with Jordan, in Israel, in the West Bank, uh, with the exception of Gaza, which is completely separate from the contiguous landmass between the three countries. So, that's one aspect. The second reason is security. All three, even today, they fully collaborate on many security issues. For example, Israel and Jordan have tremendous security collaboration. Even in the worst of time, the best of time, that security collaboration is still very solid. And even the Palestinian Authority today collaborated extensively with the Israeli security just the same, because Abbas wants to stay in power. And the only way he can stay in power is if he gets the protection that Israel actually is offering. So Israel wants to sustain the status quo. You know, for Israel, the status quo is the best thing to have. So you have a security that it, it, it's that is interconnected, and Under any circumstances, you cannot sever the security between the three parties. That's another element. The third element is Jerusalem. Three parties have unique interests and connection to Jerusalem. The Hashemite Kingdom is the custodian of the Muslim Holy Shrine. The Palestinian, as far as they're concerned, they should be there on, you know, East Jerusalem will be there on And of course, Israel's affinity to Jerusalem is well-known. So the state that Jerusalem is also a factor that does not allow the three parties to simply separate, and that's, that's the third. The third element is the Palestinian refugees. I know, you know, the Palestinians know from various negotiations, there will be no right of return per se. The solution to the Palestinian refugees is resettlement and not compensation, and the vast majority of them, as a matter of fact, are, I consider them to be internally displaced rather than actually refugees. This is the difference between the two. And that is, if through compensation and resettlement, they can in fact live in their own country because they they live in their own country, the vast majority, which is internally displaced. So you have that reality as well. Then you have the Israeli, there's a resettlement. Based on everything I look, and I'm sure you concur, there is no way that uh, much of these settlements will go anywhere else. And in fact, there is negotiation between the two sides. The Palestinian agree that the major three blocks of settlement along the 1967 border will remain the same, other than some of these other smaller ones dispersed all over the West Bank could some of them maybe removed and join the other large three blocks of settlement. With the exception of Ariel, this could be a problem that be dealt with. My feeling is. There is no reason to assume, since there are two million Palestinians living in Israel as Israeli citizens, albeit intensely discriminated against, they should not be necessarily Jewish Jews living in Palestinian state, because they already do. They already exist there. So this is again, again reality that you cannot change under any circumstance. And then of course, the Jordan has tremendous connection with all three categories. They don't want Jordan to be called Palestine. This is for them as a as a as a holy cow. Jordan is Jordan, and Jordan will never become a Palestinian state a, as such. But they also have strong connection with the Palestinians. They have a strong connection with Israel and having made peace with Israel going back uh, now 28, 29 years. And so you cannot really separate their interest from that of Israel or that of the Palestinians. This is what brought me the conclusion that if there is any opportunity to resolve the Israeli Palestinian conflict, whereas Israel can ensure its national security, it maintains its, its, its much of the, uh, of, the, of the settlement in the West Bank. They uh, prevent the, certainly the, the right of return, which the Palestinians accept that in principle. And I'm fully aware of the various negotiations that took place in that regard. So, if there is, and then speaking to the Jordanian top official, I was told they are in fact open to the possibilities, but they have one condition their fear that is, and only if first a Palestinian state is created, then they will join such a confederation because they are terrified of the, of the notion that Jordan is Palestine. So, they want an independent Palestinian state first. And then they will be prepared to join such a confederation. That's the basis of my approach to this. Now I elaborated on it extensively in big piece, which was published in World Affairs Journal. Um, and you know, there were some good reviews, some in between reviews. Some said like, well, "No, this is not going to happen." From my perspective, though, Abby, I just don't see any other possibility. Not that I'm necessarily right, but I don't see. In the horizon what other option given that one state solution is basically out of the question as mm-hmm. two state solution from bilateral two between israel and palestinians that is not going to happen either given the circumstances we have already talked about and the only way to ameliorate to monitor mod- to, to 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 ensure that all three parties can in fact live together which they already do you need to formalize that and you create the the, the mechanism political, social, uh, economic mechanism to allow them to grow and flourish together without posing a threat to to one another.
0: Uh, I read your article, and it's a very good article, and you summarized it eloquently just now, Uh, and I accept your analysis of the situation on the ground and the problems. Um, And I think that one merit of your analysis uh, and your proposal of a trilateral confederation is that your starting point is that this is not a bilateral, straightforward bilateral conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. Jordan is an element. It's a triangular conflict with three parties, Jordan, Israel and the Palestinians. It's like a room in which there are three men and and two chairs, Uh, and and Israel occupies one chair, and no one can knock Israel off their chair. And the question is, who will occupy the other chair, Jordan or the Palestinians? And the Jordanians are very worried about, as you said, That Jordan will be turned into Palestine. They want to avoid that. Uh, Now, so that's, you're right about the analysis of of the problem. But but, uh, uh, political will is necessary to have a confederation. And Israel is going to oppose this solution all the way because Israel rejects the idea of an independent Palestinian state. The Likud has never changed its manifesto. It's been opposed to an independent Palestinian state uh, all the way. And Jordan wouldn't agree to play the part that Israel wants it to play, which is to police the Palestinian territories on behalf of Israel. So the problem is Israel, because Israel's aim is not peaceful coexistence. It's not a peaceful solution, a fair solution to the problem. Israel's aim is um, not coexistence, but hegemony and domination. And this is what Israel has achieved, a Jewish supremacist state over the entire area. Uh, And in Israel, the great majority are for continuing the occupation. And there is also quite a large number of Israelis who would support transfer, the mass expulsion of Palestinians. Uh, And therefore, I don't see any realistic possibility that Israel would accept your solution. And, And equally, I don't see any realistic possibility that Israel would accept my solution. Which is a two-state mm-hmm. solution. We, we are free to discuss the merits, but in the end, at the end of the day, it's Israeli politicians like Netanyahu, like Smotrich, like Ben Gvir who, who will make Israeli foreign policy.
1: Right. Uh, I mean, you you said as is well de facto, in fact, it's an apartheid state. Israel is losing tremendous amount of. Um, you know, because of its advanced technology, it, it, it is it is also being able to buy political influence. Um, you know, just about everywhere, including India, China, and everywhere else. I mean, clamor to to get Israeli technology, and it's, Israel is basically accumulating that political uh, influence that comes with it. Um, this the Israel technology is opening the door to so many other countries that otherwise would have given Israel second thought. Uh, so, so the question is in my is, is today, given the reality of Israel today, given the disdain that the West in particular now began to feel against Israelis, uh, countries like China, you know, Russia, India, uh, uh, could not care less about the political system in Israel, but the United States does. The Europeans do. They 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 pay at least a lip service to the Palestinian. <laughs> A prospect of a state if, if they're not taking really, really concrete action to advance the process. And when I look at Israel today, you know, I, I say to myself, is it really possible for, for the Jews who have gone through hell for for centuries, being discriminated against, uh, you know, uh, persecuted, expelled, and all of that, then for them to create a state where in fact, where they were the victims, now they have become the victimizer, is that morally, in my view, morally is not sustainable. But is can Israel itself continue to exist if this is to continue for the foreseeable future? Can it really, I mean, historically speaking, we Jews could not govern ourselves for centuries and centuries. We were dispersed, and perhaps one of the reasons we were able to survive throughout the diaspora, maybe disbursement itself was a factor that no single enemy could destroy all the Jews around the the, the world. Uh, Hitler didn't succeed, even limiting to to, to Europe itself. So my question to you, do you see see danger to Israel very existent can we, Jews, govern ourselves, given our history? From, and you're terrific at looking at it from a much larger historical perspective.
0: Uh, in a large historical perspective, uh, Israel is a success story. Uh, a Jewish state was created in Palestine, uh, and uh, it was a, democ- a democracy. And Israel has enjoyed uh, a staggering amount of international sympathy and support since its establishment because it's a democracy. Israel held the moral high ground. Uh, But this began to change, particularly after 1967. Um, uh, After 1967, Israel became overtly a colonial power. I did national service in the Israeli army in the mid-1960s. And I served in the IDF proudly and loyally because in my time, the IDF was true to its name. It was the Israel Defense Forces. But after 1967, when Israel traveled its territory, The IDF became the brutal police force of a brutal colonial power. Right, right. Uh, Israel began to lose the moral high ground gradually. Since 1967, Israel has been losing international legitimacy, and the Palestinians have been gaining in international uh, legitimacy. And today, clearly, Israel no longer holds. The moral high ground because it's no longer a democracy. Uh, and, and Israel also is conducting an international campaign against critics of the state of Israel and of its policies. And anti Semitism has been weaponized in order to silence critics of Israel and critics. Um, and supporters of Palestinian um, rights. So Israel is fighting a losing battle, and the Abraham Accords that you mentioned are not. I don't see them as genuine peace agreements between societies, but rather as transactions between authoritarian Arab uh, leaders and uh, apartheid. It's transactional. Based on interest. And all the time, Israel is losing the the moral high ground. And eventually, this will catch up. And I don't think Israel can continue uh, along this path because it will alienate more and more of the international community and eventually the great powers and eventually America as well. So there is no hope for Israel if it continues on this trajectory.
1: So when you say no hope, uh, can you translate that? That it you'll continue to suffer, you know, slide, you know, more morally be ridiculed, be be, considered as a apartheid state, perhaps some sanction will be imposed on it by various countries, even say coming from the United States in 10, 15, 20 years. What is, where do you see it then yourself? Israel in 15, 20, 30 years from today. Do you think Israel would in what form Israel would be if it's continue with this current policy?
0: Um I'm a sto- I'm a historian. <laughs> I'm, I'm much more comfortable talking about the past than gazing <laughs> then in predict the live future. And to then <laughs> predict um, but
1: based on uh, based on your historic you know, experience as a historian. Yeah you can perhaps project what is the trajectory for the future based on that, as a matter of fact. That's why I'm asking you of yeah. all people the question. <laughs>
0: um, so like you, I'm an optimist and I don't want to end on a pessimistic note that there is no uh, solution and there is no uh, future. I take some comfort in something that Aba Iban once said, that He said, "Nations are capable of acting rationally after they've exhausted all the other alternatives." Right. I even hope that after Israel had eliminated uh, all the other alternatives, it will come to its senses and it will realize that to survive in the long term, it needs to come to peace, to come to terms. With its Palestinian
1: neighbors, yeah, I, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, positive premise. I hope that happened, But also, um, I, you know, from studying a conflict resolution, you also could have a major change if there is a major explosion of sorts. That is a breakdown, a serious breakdown of the entire system in order to be able to attain some kind of breakthrough. That's also a possibility. even is correct to suggest this, this can happen. They could become rational uh, once they exhaust all other options. Uh, but uh, to what extent, you know, my concern is will the Israelis, these particular, the bears and his likes, will they ever become Russian? That's my concern. And hence, I see more the prospect of massive explosion to change the dynamic of the public rather than the Gvir and his company become rational, rational and decide on a different course of action. So uh, we can talk here and now for long hours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think uh, maybe we can have some other some other time, another conversation if you wish. Yeah. Uh, so we'll stop here, and I want to really thank you so much, Abby, for taking the time. Thank you, Abby, thank you. again. Really grateful to you. Have a great day.
0: Thank you and, very much. Uh,
1: we'll be, I look forward to seeing you. Hopefully soon. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page, and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.